I had a long road of Christian denomination shopping before I found the Episcopal Church. Um, A lot of y'all took the express lane from Catholicism, but I had a few stops along the way. Uh, There was the Assemblies of God, a hot box of emotion that made me feel guilty for not feeling totally psyched for Jesus every second of every day. Um, Non-denominational churches, all just Baptists in disguise. Also, Christian rock music is just bad rock music. Methodists, um, I found the Wesley brothers to be great, but didn't understand why they needed their own denomination. Um, Lutherans liked Luther too much, and Catholics had the Pope. Hard pass for me on the mouthpiece of God thing. (laughs) And the Presbyterians. Well, John Calvin is their guy. A major player in the Reformation, which I like, but he's best known for the doctrine of predestination. You know this, right? God knows who will be saved. Uh, When Calvin was pushed to the logical end of this line of thinking, he ended up with this thing that was called double predestination. God knows the elect and the damned and created some people with the plan that they would end up in hell. Now, Many folks in the time of the Reformation found this line abhorrent, both traditional Catholics and Protestants. They didn't so much mind that God sent people to hell, but they did mind that it meant that God created evil people, and therefore God created evil. Not an admissible point in most Christian theology, including mine. Now, Some of you will differ from me on your view of predestination. You will think that God has planned your every good and bad thing that has happened in your life to happen. You are also in an Episcopal church where disagreement is a merit badge of ours. Isn't that lucky? Though, of course, you wouldn't call it luck. You would call it God's plan. My favorite story in the whole Bible plays with this concept of known and unknown, and it's the story of Joseph that we heard read this morning, a bit of it. I haven't been commenting on the Old Testament in my sermons for a month or two now, but I hope you've been keeping up. Uh, Abraham was the father of Isaac. The last time I preached it was Isaac's binding. Isaac was the father of Jacob, who has 12 sons. The youngest is Joseph. In one of the many stellar examples of biblical family values, Jacob makes it known to his children that Joseph is his favorite and gives him a special robe with sleeves. The coat of many colors is actually an old mistranslation. Joseph also can't stop running at the mouth, attention-seeking about how great he is and how he'll rule over his brothers one day. Like... Man, youngest children. It's a Freudian field day with these guys. Um, His middle brothers plot to kill him, but the oldest gets a pain in his conscience and convinces all the rest to throw him in a pit instead and sell him into slavery. Joseph's a slave then, but the happy kind they'd try to tell you in Florida. 
And like all slaves, his momentary security in a powerful house comes crashing down with nothing at all. And Joseph is back in the pit, in prison because of being falsely accused of committing adultery with his master's wife. He spends years in the dark there, years, with only his dreams for company. The Pharaoh dreams, too, troubling ones of seven starving skeletal cows eating seven full fat cows, and then seven thin wisps of grain consuming seven plump heads of grain. One of Pharaoh's servants remembers years ago his time in the pen when he met a man who interpreted dreams. So Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. There will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Now stockpile the plenty so that there will be enough to survive. Pharaoh immediately names Joseph his second in command, this manager of all that he has, rags to riches, prison to power. And today we read the end of the story. The whole world of huddled masses has shown up on Egypt's doorsteps because it is the land of promise and plenty. Joseph's brothers are among the refugees. It's worth reading on your own uh, the way Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. How Joseph struggles with himself up to this point. Uh, He sends one brother to prison and demands the rest leave and bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin, uh, whom he hasn't met because Benjamin was born after Joseph's betrayal and born to Joseph's mother, Rachel, who he also learns died in childbirth. Joseph yells and threatens in between, excusing himself to weep privately out of control. He makes his brothers take the journey from Canaan to Egypt twice, and Reuben, that oldest, has a total oldest child, I told you so moment with the brothers, saying that they are paying the price for what they did to their brother. But today, Joseph finally breaks down and tells them who he is. It's this line that gets me every time. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, Because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. It was not you who sent me here, but God. I guess one point here is about predestination, maybe. Whether God plans these things for me, these these pits and these pharaohs. For me... There's a line between God bringing life out of dead places and God creating the dead places to bring life out of. Does that make sense? In one, God authors a hardship in order to make some ultimate good happen. But in the other, God sees the disaster that broken humans have wrought among ourselves and says, let's see what we can do here. It's a line for me, an important one. But as time goes on, what I'm more and more convinced of is that when God begins working in the disasters I have wrought in my life, I won't know it in the moment. I'll know it only by the end result. 
Joseph struggles at first with what he'll do with his brothers. Really, who could blame him for wanting revenge? All those years in the pit, bitter memories churning inside his gut. Joseph's sense of superiority it is utterly gone here as he cries like a baby to see his brothers seeing him. He doesn't even lecture them about being wrong. You did not do this. God did. It's the life I want to live, actually. One totally free of resentment. That every person who I have thought wronged me terribly, I, I could see and say, it brought me here. And I don't want to call it a plan. I want to see it in the same way that a tree takes root and grows in something as inhospitable as a cliff face. I want to think of it like finding a treasure buried in a field that cost you everything to buy. A plan involves tactics and intention, but I think it's more like finally letting go and being carried by the strong undercurrent of a mercy that is not your own. I want to call it a miracle. 